Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with Secretary of State Blinken's trip to the CARICOM summit of the 15 Caribbean nations in Trinidad, Tobago, and the UN Secretary-General's visit today to Haiti as both CARICOM and the UN deliberate on how to address the lawlessness in Haiti by sending an international force of police, likely from Rwanda, since its leader has been at the summit, in the hope of restoring law and order in the poorest country in the hemisphere. We will discuss how propping up the corrupt government in Haiti only perpetuates the problem since the Prime Minister and his predecessors are in league with the gangs and the morally repugnant elite. Joining us is Brian Kincannon, a human rights lawyer and the executive director of the Institute for Justice and Democracy in Haiti, who lived in Haiti from 1995 to 2004, where he served as a human rights officer with the United Nations and co-managing attorney with the Bureau des Advocats Internationaux, a public interest law firm. Then we'll look into the battle of the billionaires as Mark Zuckerberg challenges Elon Musk with Threads, a competitor to Twitter, which on its first day signed up 30 million users. We'll assess the likelihood that Twitter, which is already losing advertisers and is not paying its bills, will end up as a snake pit for right-wing trolls or go bankrupt, and speak with Jonathan Taplin, an author and director emeritus of the USC Annenberg Innovation Lab. He has produced music and film for Bob Dylan and the band, George Harrison, Martin Scorsese, Vim Vendors and Gus Van Sant and many others, and was the founder of Entertainer, the first streaming video-on-demand platform in 1996. He's the author of Move Fast and Break Things, How Facebook, Google and Amazon Have Cornered Culture and Undermined Democracy, and his latest book, out September the 5th, is The End of Reality. How Four Billionaires Are Selling a Fantasy Future of the Metaverse, Mars, and Crypto. Then finally, following the decision by the Supreme Court's six right-wing Republican operatives in robes to deny debt relief from the crushing burden of usurious student loans, we will speak with Blake Zeff, who was a senior aide to Senate Majority Leader Schumer, the former politics editor of Salon, He is the director and producer of the critically acclaimed feature documentary Lone Wolves, that's L-O-A-N, probing the origins and effects of the student debt crisis in America, currently airing on Peacock and MSNBC. We'll discuss how two lines that were slipped into the 1998 reauthorization of the Higher Education Act has led to $2 trillion in student debt, which a few are profiting from, while 43 million Americans remain indentured for decades unable to declare bankruptcy. And before we begin, I would like to thank our sustaining listeners whose continued and growing support for background briefing enable us to remain independent without corporate underwriting, commercials, paywalls, or constant fundraising as we deliver a daily news analysis by seeking out the most knowledgeable experts closest to the scene to explore three or more major stories and issues in depth with our sound bites and spin. As a dangerous and devious serial liar and selfish sociopath continues to haunt our politics and poison our social discourse, whose angry and armed followers assault our democracy and attempt to impose a tyranny of the minority in lockstep with their fraudulent wannabe mob boss and Fuhrer, your monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our tax-deductible non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation at publictruthmedia.org contribute to an informed citizenry needed to protect and defend the will of the majority as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now is Brian Concannon, a human rights lawyer and the executive director of the Institute for Justice and Democracy in Haiti, who lived in Haiti from 1995 to 2004, where he served as a human rights officer with the United Nations and was co-managing attorney with the Bureau des Advocats Internationaux, a public interest law firm. Welcome to Background Briefing, Brian Concannon. Well, thanks for having me again, Ian. It's good to be back with you. Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, the Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, along with the House Minority Leader, Hakeem Jeffries, visited Trinidad and Tobago on Wednesday, where they met with the CARICOM nation leaders. This was the 50th anniversary of CARICOM, the Caribbean community, which comprises 15 nations. 
the main concern, of course, is Haiti and the lawlessness in Haiti. Uh, and um, on Thursday, the United Nations Security Council is taking up the issue of sending a armed force of foreign police to Haiti. This was requested by Prime Minister Haiti's Prime Minister Ariel Henry back in October. So what came out of the meeting and what's the process here of getting some help to the desperate Haitian people who are suffering from lawlessness and predation from gangs? Well, the, the process that the Haitian people are calling for it, to get respite from the gangs is to stop the international community's support of the repressive and corrupt government that is working with the gangs to impose so much terror on the population. That is their, that is Haitians' one clear ask across civil society is that the U.S. especially needs to stop propping up their government. What the international community is proposing instead of that is to send in troops as a way to prop up the corrupt repressive government and that Haitians oppose. The What's happening now is the, so the, the Biden administration, which is the main proponent of, of this force, um, it wants it to happen, but it does not want to have U.S. soldiers, especially white U.S. soldiers, being uh, cell phone videoed shooting at at uh, black civilians in Haiti, which is what this mission is going to have to do. And so what the Biden administration has been trying to do since October is to get people of color to do this work, especially uh, black countries like Caribbean and, and African countries. Up until till uh, yesterday, the Caribbean has been resolute and saying and refusing to participate. They they uh, openly say this is not appropriate. This will be perceived of as propping up a corrupt repressive government and that they do not see a military intervention as appropriate unless there is a transition towards democracy in Haiti. That position apparently changed not because anything on the ground change. There's been no, the government is no less corrupt or oppressive now than it was in February when CARICOM rejected uh, Vice President Harris's request. But what has happened, and the, the details of this aren't reported, but what has happened is that the U.S. has applied more pressure. Uh, we don't know what that pressure is. Some of it might be carrots, there might be enticements, but some of it we are fairly confident from past experience is a stick that the U.S. is. Uh, probably threatening to impose sanctions on Caribbean countries, especially issuing a travel warning. We know back in 2004, the U.S. explicitly threatened Car Caribbean countries with a travel warning, and that would be very painful. I was actually speaking with some seminary students in Jamaica last week, and they were against the intervention, but they were also really worried. They weren't even sure if they wanted to call on their government to resist the intervention because they knew that if, 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 if their government resisted too much, the U.S. would issue a travel warning for Jamaica. They would, you know, cite crime that, that's happening in Jamaica and say it's too dangerous for U.S. tourists to go to Jamaica. That would cripple the economy. And Jamaica's economy is, is uh, poor compared to the United States, although wealthy compared to Haiti, and it's vulnerable, and especially after COVID. So if the U.S. were to impose a travel warning on Jamaica, that would inflict substantial pain. And it appears that those were the type of considerations that are what changed uh, CARICOM leaders' minds. Although, again, we haven't had a real explanation for that, so we can't say that for sure. So Haiti's Prime Minister, Ariel Henry, who requested this international force back in October, he's a part of the problem, you're telling us. And and the Haitian elite, these incredibly morally bankrupt, horrible people, what's their motive? Why are they secretly financing these gangs? To what end? There was a report put out uh, two years ago by, uh, by Harvard Law School and a coalition of Haitian human rights groups. They... they uh, documented that the government was working with gangs to attack opposition neighborhoods. So you had neighborhoods where demonstrations were being planned, where people were organizing um, 
organizing politically and they went after those neighborhoods because they wanted pro-government gangs to control them in case there was an election because that could especially when you get to these very densely packed urban neighborhoods uh those a, a few square miles can can send an election one way or the other by you know if a gang controls if a pro-government gang controls the area uh, anti-government voters aren't going to show up because they know that that could be a death sentence. And so a lot of it really is about repressing dissent. It's also just about corruption that there was, I was on a, a panel last week uh, run by the, by one of Haiti's universities and people were, were putting up, uh, one of the speakers put up slides explaining who was working with these gangs. And a lot of them were, as you mentioned, the economic elites were factory owners and other people. They were using gangs to, you know, control, to, to fight back against competitors, to control neighborhoods, to uh, to uh, threaten workers. But one on one of the slides, you had Haiti's prime minister as one of the principal backers of this gang called the 400 Mawozo, which is one of Haiti's most um, most notorious kidnapping gangs. And people are making, there's money to be made off of this. So people are making money. And as long as the U.S. keeps keeps propping this system up, it's going to continue to, to inflict pain on average Haitians. Well, these crooked Haitian politicians were apparently in, inviting the Wagner group, the mercenaries, Pregosin's people in. I don't know whatever became of that, but uh... yeah, I don't think that was serious. I think someone put that up because the U.S., the Haitian government would never do that because they're supported from the United by the United States, and the U.S. would never accept that. So I don't think that that was actually a serious uh, a serious initiative by anybody. Right. Well, it was reported in the Miami Herald. I was trying to. I couldn't make sense of it. So, what's the story then with where we're heading? This just seems so tragic because compounding this tragedy of lawlessness and predation and women being raped and the idea that these disgusting elite in Haiti that have been around forever and they seem to be largely responsible for the fact that they've never been able to have democratic reform along with the U.S. seems to always want to support whoever's in power no matter how corrupt they are. It seems that the compounding this is the fact that we're turning away Haitian refugees who are fleeing from this hideous situation, making these hazardous trips through Central America and Mexico, only to be turned back at the U.S. border and flown back. And so are we doing that? Are we still sending back these desperate people into that dangerous situation? We are. But before I respond to that, I want to I want to push back against your comment that we support whoever is in power, no matter who they are. That's actually not true. We very systematically support those who are in power, who are governed from the right of center, uh, regardless of who's in the office in, in the White House in the U.S. And we also systematically oppose people governing from the left of center in Haiti, no matter who's in the White House in the U.S. One quick example that's relevant to the to the military intervention is in 1994, there actually was an intervention that was requested by President Aristide, who was a, a left of center Haitian democratically elected president. That actually worked. The mission was there to, to support democracy. Aristide went on to, you know, to claim his citizens' rights we, we did not like that, so we overthrew him and replaced him with a puppet government, then sent in an intervention to consolidate that coup d'etat. And ever since then, so now we're on almost 20 years of this, we've been supporting with UN military interventions a series of right of center, always corrupt, always repressive governments. And sorry, to get back to your question on refugees, that's one of the drivers of, of, of immigration out of Haiti, that, that since 2012, you've had this uh, corrupt, repressive government in power, and they've been looting the treasury, so Haiti's economic misery is just ballooning. You know, quick example, Americans are worried about, about uh, inflation in kind of the mid-single digits. In Haiti, it was over 20% for the entire year last year. It's been over 10% for the last four years in a row. Uh, the, the gourd, the, the currency has devalued. And all that's because the government is is stealing money. Government officials are stealing money left and right. And they're also not providing basic services. So healthcare, education, uh, things like that. The money's getting diverted from that. So Haitian misery keeps 
keeps increasing as the the bank accounts of, of government officials keep increasing. And that is what has been driving uh, refugees really for the last 10 years. One of the things that happened is initially a lot of those people were driven to South America, to Brazil, to Chile and other South American countries. They're facing persecution there. So they're heading to the United States. So what you've had over the last two years, uh, you've had a lot of Haitians at the South the southern at the Mexico US border and some of them have been have been left Haiti a few weeks or a few months before but some of them were a few years but the common denominator is that they were driven by either economic misery or political repression that was generated by the government that's been in power for the last 10 years so then let's try and figure out what in the hell has the US government been thinking about over these decades supporting these right-wing kleptocrats who brought about this misery and destabilization and forced people to leave, uh, who have then emigrated through, as I mentioned, this dangerous passage for Central America and Mexico to the United States. And now, of course, they're being blocked. So this is so counterintuitive. Why does the United States not want to have a functioning government there that represents the people and that doesn't exploit them? Yeah, if you ask them, and this has come, you know, we've talked to to to, to mem- people in the administration. We've talked with members of Congress who have who have talked to the administration. If you ask this question, the response is platitudes. Oh, we are trying to get democracy in Haiti, but of course, those platitudes are completely inconsistent with the actual policy on the ground. And time after time, we've talked to members of Congress, hoping they'll have the insight. Some of them have been close to the administration. And they say, when I talk to the State Department, it just doesn't make sense. They won't give me uh, they won't give me an answer that is consistent with the actual policy. And it's clearly that that there's a fear. Uh, there's a to, to, to us after all this time, the, the common denominator is there's a fear of Haitian democracy, that if Haitians are allowed to vote for their own leaders, you're going to have a government that's going to perhaps criticize the United States at the United Nations, as President Aristide did in 2011 and 2012. They might ask for reparations. They might ask for um fair treatment of multinational corporations. Uh, there's a lot of things that that Haitian leaders might do that will threaten the current world economic order. Obviously, Haiti's a small, poor country, and by itself, it's not going to upend the, the international order. But there's there's the only thing explanation that makes sense, and I've been doing this for 29 years, the only factor that makes sense is that the United States does not want the example of a left of center Haitian government filling its popular mandate to challenge the current unjust economic world order. Well, Brian Kincannon, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Well, thank you always, Ian, for for covering Haiti and bringing uh, bringing Haiti discussions to your audience. And again, I've been speaking with Brian Concannon, who's a human rights lawyer and the executive director of the Institute for Justice and Democracy in Haiti, who lived in Haiti from 1995 to 2004, where he served as a human rights officer with the United Nations and was co-managing attorney with the Bureau des Avocats Internationaux, a public interest law firm. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into the battle of the billionaires as Mark Zuckerberg challenges Elon Musk with threads, a competitor to Twitter, which on its first day signed up 30 million users. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, Jonathan Taplin, an author and director emeritus of the USC Annenberg Innovation Lab, who has produced music and film for Bob Dylan and the band, George Harrison, Martin Scorsese, Vim Vendors, Gus Van Sant, and many others. He's the founder of 
The Entertainer, the first streaming video on-demand platform in 1996, and he is the author of Move Fast and Break Things, How Facebook, Google and Amazon Have Cornered Culture and Undermined Democracy. And his latest book out, September the 5th, is The End of Reality, How Four Billionaires Are Selling a Fantasy Future of the Metaverse, Mars and Crypto. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jonathan Taplin. Good to be back. Well, thanks for joining us, Jonathan. And two of the four billionaires that you profile in your new book, Peter Thiel, Elon Musk, Mark Zuckerberg, and Mark Andreessen, two of them, Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg, promised to have a cage fight, which sort of reminds me of what Henry Kissinger said about the Iran-Iraq war. It's a pity that both sides can't lose. But now they are in a real competition, are they not, with the launch of Zuckerberg's a new app called Threads, which has already got 30 million users. And that's clearly a potential rival to Twitter, is it not? It's a total threat to Musk. In fact, Musk this morning had his lawyers send Meta a letter saying that they thought that uh, Meta had uh, taken all of their intellectual property, which is a total specious argument, uh, and they wanted him to cease, cease to sit. Um, and it's it's nonsense. Uh, obviously, there's nothing particularly special about Twitter. Um, Musk is pissed off every advertiser that exists by his kind of right wing troll behavior. And uh, Zuckerberg saw an opening of a more kind of normal social network and stepped in and clearly there was a market need. People are just waiting for that. And of course, the great advantage for Zuckerberg is he has hundreds of millions of Instagram users who can literally join threads by pushing one button uh, and they're already logged into it. So um, I think, I think, uh, Twitter is in real trouble. And the question then becomes, will will Musk survive some kind of involuntary bankruptcy? Well, he paid $44 billion, right? Overpaid. Yeah, and, and he's been stiffing all his creditors. Uh, he hired a new president, a woman from NBC, uh, to try and sell advertising. And the first thing she did was pay Google some, you know, $5 million that <laughs> Musk had been holding out on bills that he had for Google's cloud service. So, I mean, and he's, he's stiffing, you know, 30 or 40 other creditors. He's acting just like Donald Trump. Well, already a number of celebrities have joined Threads. Kim Kardashian, Jennifer Lopez, Jack Black, Carly Minogue, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Gwen Stefani, Noah Beck, and Shakira. And in, in terms of politicians who have always preferred Twitter, but obviously would like an alternative, you've got Mike Pence joining, and Nancy Pelosi, and Representative Alexander Ocasio-Cortez. So that's just the beginning. It's only just been up one day, hasn't it? Yeah, it, this is the first day it's up, and it's already got 30 million users. So in the few days' time, what are the figure for uh, Musk's Twitter? How many users do they have? Well, they have they probably about 150 million users, but there's a lot of people that are, are called themselves users who haven't been on the service for the last eight months. I mean... You know, they just haven't bothered to cancel their account. Um, so I I think the biggest problem for Musk is the advertising community. I mean, 85% of Twitter's revenue came from advertising. And that fell by almost 50% uh, in the last six months. And I think now that there's an alternative for advertisers for a text-based social network, they will run to threads. And and I think Twitter's advertising revenue will go down even faster. 
So it's not like Mastodon and Blue Sky, which Jack Dorsey, the former founder of uh, Twitter, uh, has been helping out. They haven't really attracted much traffic, have they? Well, that's because they have no basic user base. In other words, Threads has the complete Instagram user base. Everyone who is on Instagram has gotten a message this morning to join Threads. And, and that's hundreds of millions of people. And obviously, a lot of them have pushed the little button. So, I mean, you know, Mastodon had didn't have that possibility. Plus, Threads can use all the Instagram algorithmic advertising tools, which are so effective to send you an ad based on what your preferences are. And because you're using your your Instagram login ID, they already know all that information about you. Well, but a lot of people aren't happy with that. Apparently, Threads is asking for an awful lot of information about the user's health and fitness data, search history, contacts and browsing history, etc. So that's something that you've been critical of, isn't it? Look, I'm critical of it. I'm just telling you the reality of what what drives social media. What drives social media is advertising. And Meta has the tools to do that. Quite frankly, Twitter never had the right kind of tools in the first place. And then you add on to that, Musk being this kind of troll, um, you've got yourself a big problem. Because, you know, mainline brand advertisers don't want to be next door to right-wing propaganda. Well, what does this new threads that Zuckerberg's floating, what does it not have that Twitter has? In other words, is there any difference for the user? Well, today it doesn't have as big a user base. Right, but in terms of the actual user-friendly nature of it, what characteristics? That will be more equal. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, I, I think there's nothing that, you know, there is no moat, as financial analysts call, for Twitter. In other words, there's nothing that keeps people on Twitter. Google has a moat because you have a Gmail account. You have all your stuff in Google. You know, Apple has a moat. You have an iPhone. You're connected up into iCloud. You have all that. But Twitter has none of that. And look, Musk is facing another gigantic debt payment. He has close to, you know, $14 billion of debt, all at very expensive rates because interest rates have gone up. And and he's got to keep paying the debt. Uh, Look, the equity that he had in this with guys like, Larry Ellison and and Mark Andreessen that he talked into joining him in this thing is worth nothing. Larry Ellison might as well realize that the billion dollars he put into Twitter is gone. And, and, you know, Elon's 20 billion, which he took from selling reasonably good Tesla stock is gone. And, Andreessen, is he going to lose his shirt too? Andreessen has already lost his shirt. I'm sure he's already written it off. Hmm. Well, tell me though about, in terms of the rest of these characters, we've mentioned now Andreessen and in your new book, The End of Reality, how four billionaires are selling a fantasy future of the metaverse, Mars and crypto. So two of them are at war with each other now, Zuckerberg and Musk. Thiel and Andreessen. So what's the thread? Why have you chosen these four characters to profile in terms of the end of reality? Well, my theory is this, that there are lots of problems that technology could help us solve in America. 
whether it's got to do with climate change or housing or healthcare or all th sorts of things. But the four richest tech billionaires, Elon Musk, Peter Thiel, Mark Andreessen, and Mark Zuckerberg, are not interested in solving any of those problems. They're interested in building this fantasy future. So for Zuckerberg, it's you're going to go and spend eight hours a day with a virtual reality helmet on, and all your life will be spent in, in this metaverse. Uh, and because you have a horrible life, uh, you'll be able to live this fantasy life because you don't you can't get a date. You'll be able to date uh, the avatar of Kim Kardashian and, and pretend to go to a fancy party with uh, Taylor Swift. And, and it's complete nonsense for Musk. His notion is we should go to Mars now to go to Mars is going to cost at a minimum $10 trillion. And that money is going to come from you and me. That is our tax dollars being funneled into NASA and then NASA paying Elon Musk to ride to Mars. It is one of the stupidest ideas that has ever been conceived. There is no oxygen on Mars. We'd have to bring all the oxygen with us on the nine-month trip that it takes to get to Mars. Um, so, you know, Mark Andreessen's th theory is that you will have a cryptocurrency that the government will never be able to trace. You can do all your transactions secretly. Uh, you know, you can you can run drugs if you want because he's an ultra libertarian, and and so that's why he backed crypto so heavily. Peter Thiel's theory is that you should you'll be able to live to two hundred years. Uh, old. So that's his fantasy. Now he goes down to San Diego and gets blood transfusions from 20 year old boys, uh, you know, once a month. And he believes that'll allow him to live to the age of 200 because uh, he's afraid of death. Uh, so, I mean, these people and and then you add on top of it, they're all into A.I., and if you really think about what the vision of, of an alternative universe with generative AI it is, that the AIs will do all the work and you will sit at home and play video games or be in the metaverse. And so who's going to pay for that? Well, their theory is that the government will give you universal basic income to sit on your butt and, and have a virtual reality helmet on. And the AIs will do all the work and the people who own the AIs will make all the money. So income inequality will get worse. Uh, you know, it will be living in Blade Runner. And that to me is not a vision that I share. Uh, I think that everything that we want is it's got to do with human stuff. And these people believe that the machine will run the world. And that's what they want, because they own the machine. Well, Jonathan Taplin, I thank you for joining us. Uh, it's quite a dystopian future that you're laying out, but one that's clearly looming in the, in the near future. I, I, I must say that the, the last two chapters of the book show us a way out. So, um, Okay. Okay. Well, We'll wait till September. But again, I've been speaking with Jonathan Taplin, who is an author and director emeritus of the USC Annenberg Innovation Lab, who has produced music and film for Bob Dylan and the band, George Harrison, Martin Scorsese, Vim Vendis, Gus Van Sant, and many others. He's the founder of The Entertainer, the first streaming video on-demand platform in 1996. And he's the author of Move Fast and Break Things, How Facebook, Google, and Amazon Have Cornered Culture and Undermined Democracy. And his latest book out on September the 5th is The End of Reality, How Four Billionaires Are Selling a Fantasy Future of the Metaverse, Mars, and Crypto. We can take a brief station break back looking into how two lines that were slipped into the 1998 reauthorization of the Higher Education Act has led to the $2 trillion in student debt, which a few are profiting from, while 43 million Americans remain indentured for decades, unable to declare bankruptcy.
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Blake Zeff, who's a former politics editor of Salon, who was previously a senior aide to Senate Majority Leader Schumer. He is the director and producer of the critically acclaimed feature documentary Lone Wolves, that's L-O-A-N, probing the origins and effects of the student debt crisis in America, currently airing on Peacock and MSNBC. Welcome to Background Briefing, Blake Zeff. Thank you very much for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And the documentary originally aired back in December on MSNBC, but it also aired on the 4th of July on MSNBC, and I caught it, and it was incredibly impressed, with, as well as somewhat disturbed by it, particularly since <laughs> the Supreme Court just struck down student loan relief. So it's hard to begin, really, in a way. Let me just start with the with the debts themselves. My daughter's a doctor and a lot of her colleagues and residents that she trains are saddled with a lifetime of debt, sometimes 10, 20, 30 years, where they're paying off their student loans and they don't even get to paying the principal. They just keep paying interest. So aren't there laws against usury? How do you have a situation where students simply can't get out from under the debt? I'm really glad you brought the, brought up the issue of doctors because, you know, people think about student debt. They might hear graduate students. They might hear doctors and lawyers. And a lot of times the response is, yeah, these people are rich. Let them pay back their, their, their debts. We're supposed to feel sorry for them. They can make so much money. And, and that's actually really uh, incorrect in, in a lot of cases. And just we have, a, you know, an example in the film. We have a woman named Vivian, and she's an OBGYN, and she grew up uh, in poverty, abject poverty. Um, her parents had uh, an eighth grade education. They came over from, from different countries and speak English. And she worked her way up, studied so hard, did everything that this country tells young people they should do in order to, you know, have a good life. Right. Like she studied. She took out jobs. She did everything you'd want her to do and got really good grades. And her dream was to become a doctor because her mother sadly passed away from cancer. And she was. But before she passed away, she got good medical care at a low-cost clinic that had been open for the community um, with people who spoke Spanish and really were, were trying to work uh, with the communities for people who couldn't afford high-cost care. And that was Vivian's dream. Ever since that, she, her dream was to become a doctor who did that exact same thing. And she worked hard, got great grades, got into a top medical school. She graduated with something close to around $250,000 in student debt. And what ended up happening, and this is really interesting, is because her debt was so great, she could not afford to work in that kind of low-cost clinic, which was the whole reason she got into medicine to begin with, because she would be in such debt she wouldn't be able to afford her own payments. And so there's not just a cost to the individual when it comes to student debt. Sometimes there's a cost to society, because think about the doctors like Vivian that we're missing out on, or you know, you potentially have lawyers who end up with these large debts. And what a lot of them do is they go right into these corporate law firms to defend corporations. That's fine. That's their choice. But a lot of them would rather be um, engaged in public interest law or civil rights law or immigration law. But we're not having that because they're in such debt. They have to, you know, as I said, go into corporate law defending oil companies when that's not what they'd like to be doing. So, um, you know, I, I hope I answered your question. But, I, right. but I, you know, you, you started by saying the, the thing about doctors. It made me think this is a cost not just to the individuals, but also to society. So where is this money going? Then? The money that should be going two doctors and lawyers who are spending so much, I don't know what percentage of their income, but it's a huge amount of their income on an endless uh, cycle of debt. Yeah, and let's be clear, most of them are not doctors and lawyers. That's just one example, of course, that I'm giving. Um, a lot of them are teachers, nurses. Uh, you know, the majority of student debt is graduate school debt. And here in the U.S., you know, we, we tell people that if you want to become an attractive job candidate, if you want to have a good uh, career a lot of people are being pushed into graduate degrees, like master's degrees and things like that. And again, those professions are not rich people. These are teachers, nurses, people like that. Um, and so in terms of the money, this is sort of the wild thing. In the U.S., the student loans, uh, uh, a couple of decades ago, student loan portfolio was taken over by the U.S. government, the Department of Education. So these high interest loans, you referred to earlier to the really, really high interest rates that a lot of these loans have. Not only do they have high interest rates, they have what's called compounding interest, which means if you miss a payment, you could have your interest compound to the point where 
uh, it just the debt grows exponentially and you can never recover. We know people who are paying their loans on time, the full amounts, but yet they still owe more now than they did at the beginning. And to get back to your question, the irony of all this is that the money is not even going in many cases to some greedy private lender anymore. 80 percent of the t- of the loans nowadays are U.S. government backed loans. And so it's the government that th- these people, you know, to, to go back to the example before that woman, Vivian, that doctor, she was a hero during during covid. She worked on the front lines in Mount Sinai, one of those hospitals in New York City that was really, really on the front lines when the pandemic was really out of control. And at the same time that she was doing that, really being a hero, one of those kind of essential workers, first responders, she was in debt to her own government to the tune of $250,000. That was kind of the thanks from the government. And so that's what's so wild about all this. And that's why you're seeing a lot of these solutions that are being suggested, you know, like Joe Biden um, proposed to cancel between ten dollars and $20,000 of the debt for many people. And the reason why he felt he could do that is because it's not private debt. It's debt that, um, you know, that is, is controlled by the U.S. government. Of course, the Supreme Court struck it down. And now I think this will be continue to be relitigated. So the Supreme Court majority, the six uh, right wing justices, clearly have not seen your documentary, right? I don't think they have. <laughs> right. uh, it's funny you mentioned that, though, because um, members of Congress have. And I was talking with Ayanna Presley, who's a, uh, a member of Congress from the Massachusetts uh, the Boston area in Massachusetts, and she appears briefly in it, and she's been talking about hosting um, some sort of panel uh, in Congress in the hopes that we can get attention for it. Funnily enough, Canadian Parliament reached out to me. This is a U.S. issue primarily. They reached out and hosted a screening in the Parliament uh, with a panel uh, that Parliament did, um, and they had, we had a very lively discussion about it. And I, the gist of it from their perspective was we want to make sure that we don't end up in a system like what's happening in the U.S. But this interest rate, which I suggested earlier, would violate usury laws. It's sort of similar to mafia loan sharks, vigorish, isn't it? It's the same system. It is. And the other thing, though, that makes these these loans in particular very unique is they are virtually the only debt in the U.S. that you cannot get rid of through bankruptcy. So we talk to bankruptcy lawyers. They can't understand this. Um, if you and I go out to Vegas tonight and lose $10 million gambling, we could potentially discharge that debt in bankruptcy. If you are um, delinquent in certain kinds of payments um, that, that you're supposed to make you know, because you've gotten sued for negligence, you could potentially discharge that in, in bankruptcy. Certain income tax delinquencies can be discharged. There's all sorts of things that you can discharge through bankruptcy. But, and the, the movie really gets into this, in 1998, someone snuck two lines into a bill that made it so that student debt was virtually one of the only debts you cannot get rid of through bankruptcy. And that has really made them essentially not alone. They are really in a special class. Um, I don't even know what you would call it. But, you know, it, it, when you take away the ability to charge a debt in bankruptcy, what you do is create a really broken financial system because the colleges now know that the money is guaranteed no matter what, as do the lenders. So the lenders will lend to anybody. They don't even care whether you can afford it or not. And they'll lend you as much money as you possibly can imagine because the money's guaranteed to be repaid. The colleges know that, too. So they just hike their tuitions higher and higher and higher. There's no downward pressure to keep them honest. And that's why we ha- it's such a failed financial system. And that's why so many people in your documentary, because your documentary is kind of a detective story, like a shoe leather looking for who slipped these two lines into this 1998 reauthorization of the Higher Education Act under Bill Clinton, which he s- signed with great alacrity uh, during the Monica Lewinsky scandal. So, you know, you even got the chairman of the Fed, Powell, talking about how devastating it is to, to indenture young Americans um, before they even get a job, and and it means it's depressing the housing market, the people can't buy homes, cars, refrigerators, get married, etc., and then you've got senators, particularly um, Dick Durbin, who's, what, for at least 10 years has been trying to undo this. So explain, yeah. if you will, Blake, the connection between the bankruptcy provision or the, the fact that you can't discharge the debt through bankruptcy and making student loans unique in that regard. Explain that connection to why it is that so many people recognize that you've got to get rid of that provision in order to free up the students? Is it to do with the fact that the door is closed or is it to do with what you just said, which is that 
that cynically the lending authorities and colleges are just jacking up the prices. Well, there's a lot of different issues at play here. And one of the things I want to emphasize that you kind of hinted at is, yeah, you've got Jerome Powell, who is, you know, no bleeding heart liberal. You know, I think he'd probably identify himself as a conservative. He was a Republican appointee initially. Um, he is joined by other Republicans in the film that we have in there. We have another Trump, you know, former Trump official, Wayne Johnson, who was hired to run the student loan portfolio for the Department of Education under Trump. He quit just months into his tenure because he could not believe how disgraceful the system was. And how, you know, he had a financial background. He thought it made no financial sense. All the incentives were off. And so he then quit and devoted himself to student loan, the, the cause of student, of student debt relief, which is, you know, really, he's a Republican conservative uh, businessman. And of course, um, you know, we paired people like that with Democrats as well, just to show that this is really a common sense issue when you look at it, um, with it, take away the politics of it. If you just look at the facts, we have people on all throughout the political spectrum agreeing on this. And if I want to be kind of generous about this, when you ask, you know, how did this come to be and why and all that, we do eventually find the culprit. There is a whodunit, like you said. We want to know how did this get snuck into the 1998 bill because no one put their name to it. And we eventually find that person. And when we talk to that person, I think there's a, there's a potential um, generous interpretation where you can say, that they were well-meaning in 1998. Back then, college did not cost $80,000 a year. It was still expensive, but people were not having these lifetime debts. And I think they didn't really fully understand the extent of the problem, and they developed um, a plan, you know, a, a couple of different repayment plans, where, you know, if you supposedly if you pay down a certain amount each month, the government will work with you, and then after a certain number of years, the debts will be extinguished. The problem was that happened under Clinton. And they felt that if they'd done that, then you don't need the bankruptcy option. They felt that that, you know, there was a moral hazard argument at the time that they're going to have people graduate and they turn 22 years old and they say, well, I filed for bankruptcy, so I don't have to pay my student debts. And, you know, that fear combined with the idea that the repayment programs that they were installing would be terrific is sort of the guy's defense. He said, you know, we felt that we'd done enough. Now, the problem is, that two things happened. College tuition skyrocketed since that. 25 years later, it's triple what it once was. But wages have not gone, gone up by triple during that time at all. So that's been one problem. The other problem is once the Clinton administration left, you had another administration come in, which was the Bush administration, and they were not as wedded to those programs. And so the administration and execution and implementation of those programs was not done well, and the programs became a mess. So once those, I'm talking about these repayment programs that the Clinton administration had had created. So once you lost those repayment programs and college uh, tuition was skyrocketing, the system really fell off the rails at that point. Well, to the point now where Republicans and Democrats are both looking at this and saying we got to fix this. Right, you got Senator Cornyn and Senator Hawley joining with Senator Durbin. Um, yes, but going back to the kind of detective story which is a thread in your documentary, you finally get to the guy after you go through all kinds of people you thought were the sort of mendacious Congress people uh, on the various chairs of the Rules Committee, etc. But McKeon, you know, he looked like he was a suspect. And in fact, somebody told you that he was. And when you get to him, he says no. And he thinks he thinks it's terrible. And this is a guy that never met a lobbyist he didn't like. Right. So, so that was. And he's a lobbyist now. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So you finally get to the guy who's a former uh, assistant secretary of education during the Clinton administration, uh, who's now drives eighteen-wheeler trucks in Colorado. It sort of struck me as kind of the banality of evil. I mean, he was a nice guy, but he thought he was doing the right thing. But think about the human cost, which, what is it now, forty-four million indentured Americans. Yeah, I know it's startling. And, and you know, I, I had the same thought as you. I thought interpersonally, he's a nice guy. He's decent. But, you know, at one point I asked him, have you thought about this at all since you made that decision 25 years ago? And he kind of laughed at me and said, well, it's not exactly been the most dominant thing on my mind. And I don't know. I, I, I believe in accountability journalism. That was one of the, the points of making this project was to kind of say, find out who had done this and see if maybe they changed their mind. And like you said with Buck McKeon, believe me, Buck McKeon is not blameless. For this, Buck McKeon, for those listening, was a congressman, a Republican congressman from California who was the head of the relevant subcommittee on this. And he definitely let it, you know, he, he was, it wouldn't have, if he was against it, it wouldn't have gone through. 
but he was basically saying, well, it wasn't my idea. Um, but even still, he's had some growth. He looks back at it now and he says, yeah, we got to fix this. This is a problem. But the fellow who you're talking about, the culprit, had not really done much reflection on it. And that, to me, um, I felt was, was worthy of critique. So let's focus on fixing it which is not difficult. I mean, one of what's come out of the Supreme Court decision is that the Supreme Court decision struck down Biden's loan forgiveness program based on the HEROES Act, saying it's unconstitutional, even though the HEROES Act does have a provision for emergencies. So now they've gone back to Plan B to put it under the Higher Education Act of 1965, which gives it more legal justification, I guess. But some senators like Bernie Sanders are saying under the Higher Education Act of 1965, Biden could today just cancel this debt. As you've pointed out, Blake, 80% of it is held by the government. Absolutely. There's a lot of criticism of the Biden administration uh, from people who are active in this cause and believe in cancellation. They say, well, the theory that they used in defending it in the Supreme Court was that they used the wrong legal statute in terms of the powers that they had. Uh, there's a couple of different ways you could do it. There's the Powers Act, there's the Higher Education Act, there's a couple of different, I don't want to get too, too technical here, but there is another, we'll have to see you know, how the Biden administration responds to the Supreme Court decision because there are many activists and advocates who will tell you that they can go back and challenge this by using a different legal case. And that's really what everyone who's listening to this should be keeping an eye on. Is the Biden administration is going to accept this or are they going to fight back and bolster their legal argument? Because they're, I'm not a lawyer, but the lawyers tell me that there are other ways to do this, maybe stronger ways to do it. By the way, this is separate from the bankruptcy issue we were just talking about. There's nothing to stop anyone from pursuing the bankruptcy option at the same time, which is to say you could have cancellation. Um, if you cancel these debts, you know, we have someone in the movie who makes a good point. He says, okay, if you cancel these debts, that's great, but that's just a retrospective solution. That's just, you know, for people who have had the debt in the past, but what about the people who are accruing new debt tomorrow? Doesn't do much for them. You need to have a prospective solution, meaning, you know, something looking forward that changes the structure of the system. And that's where that bankruptcy system could potentially be helpful. So let's focus on why that can't be done. It seems like a simple thing. And as the documentary points out, Dick Durbin has been calling for this for decades now. Now he's got Senator Cornyn, Senator Hawley, and presumably others. And the documentary sort of ends with your former boss, Senator Schumer, who hasn't moved on it, on the bill. I don't know whether he has by now, but he's been championing the idea of that Biden can do it. And that, of course, has turned out to not have worked out due to the Supreme Court's ruling. So what's going on with Senator Schumer? Yeah, well, there's, so there's, again, two issues, uh, debt relief and bankruptcy. In terms of debt relief, he's been pretty vocal about it. He wants Biden to, you know, I think cancel up to 50000 was what he said. And I said, well, why don't you do it? You know, why don't you do it legislatively in the Congress? And he, I think, correctly said, well, we don't have the votes for that because you need 60 votes, you know, essentially, effectively in Congress to get things done. And he doesn't, you know, he didn't even have, you know, all Democrats. So he had under 50 so that being what it is, um, you know, certainly he could and should push to get, uh, you know, all members of his of his conference to do that. But in the meantime, he said the president can do this with a stroke of a pen. The president tried to do it with a stroke of a pen. The Supreme Court said no. Now the question is, will the president continue to push back and try new avenues for it? Now, in terms of the bankruptcy piece of this, when I mentioned it to Senator, Senator Schumer in the film, seems a little less uh, familiar with the details of it. We get his office the details of that uh, particular initiative or that bill from Senator Durbin. And then later on in the film, we mentioned that he publicly comes out in favor of that. So where the breakdown was, you know, I talked to Senator Durbin at the very end of the film. I say to Senator Durbin, you're in charge of the committee, uh, the Judiciary Committee that can bring this you know, bill out of committee. Will you bring it to committee this year? And he says, yes, but that didn't happen. And so, you know, that might have been the golden moment to do it uh, because, you know, you had a Democratic House, Senate and White House. That's not the case anymore. So um, it's only going to get harder. So why did that happen or, or not happen? That is the big question. I've continued to call uh, Senator Durbin's office and have not gotten a clear response on that. And, you know, this movie came out. We really pushed to make sure this film came out before that session ended. 
so that it would come out and there would be an opportunity for people, if they felt strongly about this, to work the phones, um, call the call various senators' offices and other people's offices to, to push for it. And um, clearly it was not sufficient. So who then is lobbying against it? What's the countervailing force there that explains the inertia? So this gets a little complicated, but I'll try to keep it as, as clear as I can. There are two different kinds of loans. We kind of alluded to this before. There's the private student loans and the public student loans. Um, the, while we say most of them are public, meaning you know owned by the government, there's still 20% that private companies, banks, lenders are making a killing on. And they, that is a very powerful lobby because they know that anything that is done in terms of the public loans could then potentially be done with the private loans. So, for example, with bankruptcy, there used to be bankruptcy for student loans. And then um, the 1998 bill made it so that public student loans could not be discharged in bankruptcy. And then once that happened, the private lenders came and said, well, hey, that's not fair. If what's good for public loans should be happen for private loans. And their good friend, Lindsey Graham, who then was a congressman, now is a senator, got on the floor of the House and said, oh, it's not fair. We just want equity for the private lenders to have the same treatment. And so then, of course, they got rid of bankruptcy for private loans as well. So you do, I don't want to discount, even though we're talking about the government a lot, I don't want to discount the influence and the impact of private lenders in all this. And of and course, they have lobbyists and, as well. And they're making out like bandits, right? Correct. So just in closing then, like, there obviously is a lot of energy now I mean, some of the political pundits are saying, well, this may be a terrible thing for the students, but it may be good for the Democratic Party because the young people are going to be so angry that um, they're going to come out and vote. So, well, address that, if you will. Do you think, I mean, it's <laughs> it's not a solution. No, I don't. I actually disagree. I, I, look, I happen to have this, you know, silly old-fashioned idea that if you actually get things done, but that's the best thing to run for election on or to run for election. You know what I'm saying? So right. I think if they can get this done, that will be uh, very motivating because it will show that government can, can do things. Um, and I think that just feeding into the usual cynicism in Washington, you know, I was really careful with this film to, you know, while there's a lot of bad news that we talk about it on cover, I tried to keep it upbeat, try to have humor in the film. And I try to have some optimism because I don't want people to just throw their hands up and give up. But that's what can happen when you're drowned with cynicism and a government that doesn't do anything and a government that isn't accountable. And, you know, that's that's a risk. I don't think that that's a political boon for the Democrats or anyone to say, oh, this this thing we told you would happen didn't happen. You know, vote for us again. That's not really a great, in my mind, a great motto. I think a better one is we said we were going to do this for you and we show that government can actually take care of people um, who are in need when it's justified. But just in closing, do you think that Biden, with the stroke of a pen, could order the Secretary of Education just to cancel this debt and see what John Roberts does then? Throw the ball back in his court? He I mean, certainly that's... could. I mean, again, I'm, I'm not a lawyer, so I can't speak to the, you know, to, to the legal uh, to, to the legal case, but certainly he has it within his power to send this thing back to the Supreme Court. And like I said before, use a different legal argument, as many of the activists and advocates and experts are saying he ought to. That is absolutely something he can do. And I think that people are watching to see if he will do that to test just how strong his commitment to this issue is. Well, Blake Zeff, I thank you so much for joining us here today. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Blake Zeff, who's a former politics editor at Salon, who was previously a senior aide to Senate Majority Leader Schumer. He is the director and producer of the critically acclaimed feature documentary Lone Wolves, that's L-O-A-N, probing the origins and effects of the student debt crisis in America, currently airing on Peacock and MSNBC. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. 
Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again on Sunday with another background briefing. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305